Last week, Deborah was preaching, and she was in Acts chapter 14, and this word expectation kept coming up. And then Glenn, in his call to worship and throughout the, the opening block of worship, did you, did you hear the language of expectation starting to rise? And when I preach this morning, you will hear that same language because at the start of this new year, that is what we are hoping and praying and stepping into, an expectation that God will move in power and that lives will be changed and his church will be built. So if you are simply a Bible listener, sit back, relax. Uh, if you're a Bible follower, words will be on the screen or you can grab a hard copy or turn your device on. We are in Acts chapter 15 today. I'm going to read from verse 1. Yeah, I'm smiling because I'm looking down the church. There's a clock on the back wall that's 10 minutes slow. So that must mean I've got 10 minutes extra to preach. That's great. Listen now for the word of God. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The elders and the apostles met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart showed that in, sorry, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me, Simon Simon is also Peter. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to those a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. 
And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Amen. We'll, we'll stop there for today. Let's pray for a second as we come into this really complicated, let's be honest, passage of Scripture. God, you are here in this place. The author of these scriptures, you are present amongst us. And so we say, speak, Lord, and move in power. Allow your kingdom to break into our lives as we listen for your voice and receive you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This past year, well, let's not assume everybody knows what this is. Once a year, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, there's a whole bunch of Presbyterian churches, kind of like, or not really like Orangefield, but kind of like Orangefield, um, come together, minister and a representative elder and a youth person come together um, at Assembly Buildings in Belfast for what we call the General Assembly. It is my highlight of the year. I'm joking. I actually do really enjoy it. That's, that's not fair to say that. I do enjoy it. It's good to catch up with colleagues and stuff. But this year at the General Assembly, there was a task group that was appointed to um, look at the area of um, church membership for people where there is an intellectual disability. The normal practice to come into church membership in a Presbyterian church is you are a Christian, you've received Jesus into your life, and then you go through some classes with the minister and then you stand at the front of the church and you agree and say, I do, to a number of questions that are asked. But the question was raised, what if somebody doesn't have uh, an intellectual capacity to process that information at that level? Or, or what if somebody uh, doesn't speak or doesn't inhabit a world of words and doesn't experience life through words and intellect the way many of us do? Does that mean they're excluded from church membership? And, and PCI had never had this conversation at a denominational level before. And so the, the, the little task group brought their report, and it's a two-year project. This was an interim report, and there was a little bit of conversation about it, but the, the substance of that debate will happen in June of next year's assembly. But, but I walked out of the General Assembly. Didn't I didn't walk out. I, it was over, and I left. Sorry, that's... <laughs> you, you know what I mean. I walked out. 
it was over and I, and I left and I was walking out with a, a friend of mine who has a, a child who has an intellectual disability. And this guy's a minister and he was in tears, tears running down his cheeks as we walked across the road to the train station. He said to me, I never imagined my daughter would be able to be a full member in the church. I never imagined. Nobody had told him she couldn't. He just said, I never imagined that this conversation would take place. Now, for some of you here in Orangefield, and and for me, that's strange because I've never worked in a church where this has been an issue before. And in Orangefield, this has never been an issue. We we have a, a theology that our God is a missional God, that he is on mission and his, his heart is to see people drawn to him. And he, he does that through being incarnational. He comes to us. We don't come to God. God comes to us, to you and to me. He comes to us and he meets with us and he loves us. And in his grace and in his mercy, he, he starts to do a work in our hearts before we can even say his name. Salvation begins with a work of the Spirit, a work of God coming and meeting with you and taking hold of your heart. Salvation begins in grace. Not in me. It begins in grace. The grace of God coming to us. And the question the General Assembly is asking then is, what response is required? Does someone have to articulate their faith in a full way and stand at the front of the church and and answer questions to be a Christian and to be a member of the church? What response is required? You see, it was similar, not, not the same, don't hear me, it's not the same, but it's similar to what we see in this passage. Paul and Barnabas you know, Paul, he wrote a bunch of the New Testament. Barnabas, his best mate, these guys are on mission. They are traveling around Gentile communities, non-Jewish communities, talking about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, telling people about Jesus. And they are seeing the Holy Spirit fall and take hold of, of the hearts of Gentile men and women and children and doing a work in their hearts with grace and with the love of God And they are seeing these non-Jewish men and women saved. They're seeing the Holy Spirit fall amongst them and do miracles amongst them. They are seeing all kinds of signs and wonders happen. But there's complications here. Complications that seem ridiculous to us at first level, first reading. But they were huge for the early church. The complications were that Christianity was born out of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. The whole story of the Old Testament is a Jewish story. And so the Messiah was coming as a savior for the Jewish people. And so Jesus was born Jewish, grew up Jewish, and his followers were mostly Jewish. They were, these Christians in the early church were Torah observing Jews. They they were circumcised. They, They were following the law of Moses. They were doing all the things that the Old Testament told them they should do. And they were trusting in Jesus. And any Gentiles who were 
becoming part of this Jesus movement were proselytes to Judaism. It's a very fancy word. It means they were converts to Judaism. So if you were a a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you were following Jesus, you were also, if you're a bloke getting circumcised, you were also keeping the, the Jewish holidays. You were also reading the Torah, the Old Testament. You were doing all the Jewish stuff, which was part of the package, part of the deal of being a Jesus follower. Are you with me? It's not new for you. You know this stuff. But this new wave of the work of the Spirit, this new movement in the Jesus story was seeing Gentiles becoming Christians through Peter's ministry initially, but, but ultimately through Paul and Barnabas' ministry. But they weren't converting to Judaism. They were following Jesus, but they were still Galatians. They were following Jesus, but they were still Corinthians. They were following Jesus, but they were still Romans. They weren't becoming Jews. And what's happening in this passage is a bunch of very conservative Jewish Christians, Pharisee Jewish Christians, came along and said, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to become Jewish as well. It's not enough that you follow Jesus. You've got to do this and this and this as well. And so the question before the early church, dead simply, far up on the screen, is Jesus plus what equals salvation? Jesus plus what equals salvation? And if you were a Gentile, the question that was being asked 2,000 years ago, was it Jesus plus circumcision and observing the Hebrew law equals salvation? I hope you're feeling uncomfortable with this. But interestingly, it's a question that every generation of the church must explore and deconstruct and think through for themselves because it presents differently in every generation of the church. If you are a Roman Catholic in Northern Ireland, Jesus plus what equals salvation? Do you have to become a Protestant? If you are a Muslim refugee who has traveled and has ended up in a hotel in Belfast and connected in with ourselves or with Windsor or with Fisherwick or with some other Christian church and you're exploring the question of who is Jesus? Jesus plus what equals salvation for a Muslim refugee living in Belfast? Must they adopt a Western dress code and lifestyle? as well. And then bring the question into what we're currently debating at the General Assembly. If you have an intellectual disability, Jesus plus what equals salvation? Must you be able to fully articulate and understand your faith and your theology? Jesus plus what equals salvation? And it's not just something we project onto others. Many people here today hold this equation over their own hearts. Internalizing the debate. I'm not smart enough. I never went to, Orangefield's a really intelligent church. I never went to university. Does, Does that mean because I can't read the books everybody else is reading and articulate 
my, my theology and my faith the way everybody else does around here, does that mean Jesus plus what equals salvation? Or maybe not good enough. Some of you, we've had conversations about it, have told me when you were growing up, you were made to feel like you were not good enough. And that's felt like a weight on your soul for 20 years, 50 years, 70 years. Because you've made to be made to feel like Jesus plus being good enough equals salvation. Is grace enough? Is the work of Jesus on the cross enough? Is the fact that, that God left the eternity of heaven and came to earth as we've been celebrating at Christmas time and became frail in the form of a human baby, dependent upon a teenage mom and, and grew up in, in Palestine, largely unheard of by anybody? And at 33 years old, opened his arms and absorbed the sin and the brokenness and the pain of the world into his spirit, into his body, into his soul. And in his last breath said, it is finished. As his body was led in the tomb, three days later, resurrected to eternal life, death defeated, sin overcome. For you, and for me, and for the Muslim refugee, and for the person with an intellectual disability, God continues to come and meets with them where they are, meets with you where you are. And you know what, guys? If, if you can't, if you have an intellect that allows you to think things through and rationalize and make sense of, well then, yeah, there's a faith response that's meant to be articulated. Of course there is. But if you don't have that ability, God meets you where you're at. And by his spirit begins a work of grace in your heart. And we may never be able to see with our human eyes what response looks like in the life of somebody with an intellectual disability who God has taken hold of by his grace and his mercy. But God can see it. God can see it. Is grace enough? That was the debate, that was the question the early church were, were wrestling with. And it's interesting, when, when the, these conservative Pharisee Christians came down to the place where, where Paul and Barnabas were and started stirring up trouble and saying, you guys, it's not enough that you believe. You've got to also get circumcised. You've got to also follow these laws. Paul and Barnabas didn't argue with them there and then. Paul and Barnabas didn't retreat into a little corner. Do you know the people, when there's an argument, you retreat into the corner of people who think the same things you think? And say, can you believe this? Say, I can't believe this. Say, no, you're right. You're... Do you know what I mean? You ever do that? They didn't do that. They traveled to Jerusalem to the, the center of the Jesus movement and the Jesus story at that, that time. They traveled to Jerusalem. And what we see in these pages is the very first general assembly. 
before there was a Presbyterian church, this is the first general assembly. This is the first formal meeting together of leaders in the church to discuss theology and discuss policy and discuss dogma and how things are meant to be and what's off God and what's not off God. This is what we're seeing on these pages. And I guess what I want to say this morning is theology forms expectation. Our theology must shape our expectation. If God says it, we've got to believe he's going to do it. That's what that means in layman's terms. Theology must shape and form our expectation. You see, we get here and the conservative Pharisee Christians, they say, well, this is what we think. Paul and Barnabas say, well, this is what we see happening. People are, are getting saved and um, the Holy Spirit's coming and doing stuff. And Peter stands up. Peter's one of the most respected leaders in the early church. Peter stands up. And Peter recounts the, the vision that he had a few chapters ago in the book of Acts. We looked at it before Christmas where he's on the rooftop and he has this vision of a sheep being let down. All these different animals, clean animals, unclean animals, according to Jewish law, spread out before him. Peter's starving. And God, say, excuse me, God says to him, Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. I can't, I can't eat unclean things. That's against the rule. That's against the Old Testament law. And God says to him, Peter, don't say something's unclean that I have made. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. God was preparing Peter for what was going to happen next. Because Peter had no expectation that God was going to move amongst the, the Gentiles, that they were going to experience salvation. But next thing you know, there's a at the door. And friends of Cornelius are at the door. Cornelius is this Gentile leader. And they invite Peter to come and Peter feels the Spirit say to him, yeah, go, go with these guys. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house. As a Jew, he can't go into a Gentile's house, but God says to him, I want you to go in here. So he, he goes in, and he preaches about Jesus. He preaches about the grace of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit falls, and people give their lives to Jesus, and they are baptized there and then. And none of them are circumcised. Peter shares this account of what's happened. Because God met with Peter and changed his theology, changed how he understood who God was and what God was doing. And by changing his theology, he shifts his expectation that God is going to do a work amongst people who aren't Jews. And the kingdom of God is going to break in beyond a single space and a single people. And Peter finishes talking and then James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, who has become the, the clerk of the General Assembly in Jerusalem. He's the main leader, essentially. He stands up and, he, and interestingly, he addresses Peter as Simon, which is his Jewish name, because James is trying to make a point to the conservative Jews who are objecting. So he calls him his Jewish name, Simon. And he says, actually, guys, We've missed a trick here because the Old Testament doesn't simply say, 
The, the book of the laws we have it as Jews doesn't simply say that the Messiah is going to come and be a savior simply for Jewish people. And he quotes from Amos 9, he talks about David's fallen tent being restored. And he quotes from Isaiah 25, talks about a feast for all peoples on the mountain of God. And from different parts of the Old Testament, he he shows how the Jewish people should have always had an expectation that when the Messiah came, God's kingdom was going to break in amongst both Jew and Gentile. That God was going to gather all, people from all nations to himself. People of all abilities to himself. People with different skin colors to himself. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. And James says that's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing people see Jesus and, and receive his grace in their lives. But continue being Galatians and Ephesians and Corinthians and Romans. But a Christian Galatian, a Christian Roman, a Christian Corinthian. See, to be fair, James's theology had probably shifted when Paul and Peter had been in when sorry, Paul had been in Jerusalem on his previous visit. If you read about it in Galatians chapter 2, Paul and Peter had a row amongst the apostles about whether Gentiles could be saved and whether as a Christian you could sit down and eat with a Gentile person. And Paul had challenged Peter and Peter had been like, oh yeah, I see that now. James had been there. His theology had shifted. Because his theology had shifted, his expectation had shifted. And what we're seeing here is this little church, this Jesus movement at this part, about 50 AD, give or take, fueled by Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, shaping the theology of the people to allow their expectation to rise, to say that what the Messiah is going to do is bigger than one nation or one people group. That God's desire is for all people to be saved. That Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That what started amongst the Jews is going to spread to all the earth. That's the theology that must fuel and feed our expectation as it fueled and fed their expectation 2,000 years ago. That's the theology that is driving a couple of young Linfield football players who are Christians in an environment that is largely ambivalent, if not hostile, to Christianity to run an alpha course and invite all their teammates to come to it. That alpha course is starting in a few weeks' time. Isn't that incredible? The two guys, in, a couple of guys in professional sport who love Jesus are putting their head above the parapet and running an alpha course and inviting the whole of the Linfield squad to come along to and others as well. In the belief that the good news of the gospel, the grace of Jesus is not just for the people who are interested in rock up on a Sunday, but actually it is life transforming news for everybody and everybody needs to hear about it. 
That's the theology that, that fuels the expectation of my mate Davy, who, when he and I were in a shop a while back up in Coleray, and I was buying a bottle of Coke, he started talking to the guy behind us in the queue. Before I got out to the car, he was praying with the guy in the car park and led him to the Lord. Theology shapes our expectation. Do you believe God's going to do what he says he's going to do? It's the theology of my friend Andy, who every time we run an Alpha course here, he invites somebody new along to it. Just another person he works with, taps on the shoulder, do you want to come to Alpha? Do you want to come to Alpha? Theology must shape our expectation of what God is going to do. As you read this story, this Jesus story, what do you believe Jesus is going to do? past year, post-COVID, I know COVID's not over yet, but it has changed and how we're living with it has changed. But the past year after lockdowns has been a year of regathering as a church, of reaching out to the people who, who have been slow to come back, who have disconnected, who have felt isolated, who have felt fearful. It's been a year of regathering people back in and some of you are only recently back at church. Some of you at home aren't yet back and we love you and we really just want to welcome you back into this space. But 2023, I feel in my spirit, is a different year. It's a year where the church pivots from regathering to back onto mission. It's a year when we take the promises that we see in the Bible that, that, that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That God's desire is for, for all men and women to, to encounter his grace. Where he tells his people to, to get off their backsides and get out of the building and go into all the world and all the city and all your workplace and all your family and make disciples of all nations. It's a pivoting moment for the church as he calls us once again back into mission. Theology fuels expectation. What are you believing that God is going to do this year? What do you see him promise in his word? And then finally, as we bring this into land, there's a weird bit at the end of the passage that needs to be explained. And it is weird. It's, it's totally weird. Write down if your Bible's open from verse 19. James says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It was great. Instead, we should write to them. And so, this first general assembly in Jerusalem of the baby church, the new church, the leaders decide, James proposes, probably Peter seconds, and everybody agrees, the leaders decide that what is happening amongst the Gentiles is off God. It's a revival. It's authenticated by the Holy Spirit at work amongst them. We shouldn't make it difficult. We should make it as easy as possible. And James gives three stipulations. He says, no food sacrificed to idols. He says, write to them and tell them they can't eat food sacrificed to idols. He says, write to them and tell them they must stay away from sexual immorality. And then he says, write to them and tell them they can't eat, eat animals that have been strangled to death and they must stay away from blood. So three 
stipulations. It's weird, isn't it? That after he says, you know, you don't need to follow all the rules. Grace is enough. He then takes these three Old Testament, Levitical, Hebrew laws and puts them in front of the Gentiles. What's he doing? Well, some think it's a compromise. That unity is really important and he wants to keep the, the conservative Jewish Pharisee Christians on board with the, the new Gentiles. So he says, listen, what, what about this for a bit of a high, a bit of give and take, a bit of halfway measure? I'm not convinced. I do think unity is important. I think compromise is important, but I'm not sure that's what's going on here in this passage. I think it's too significant a moment for the church because after this moment, the mission explodes, the ministry explodes all over the world. And you've got Peter's vision where God says, take and eat nothing that I have made is unclean. God's deconstructed something. So James is unlikely to be going against God. And later on, Paul writes, and he talks about food sacrifice to idols, about eating it. He says it's a matter of conscience. It's not a do or don't, it's a matter of conscience. And if you're with somebody who thinks it's wrong, don't do it. So it's too simple to say that this is a compromise by James to keep the church together. So what's going on? I apologize if you're glazing over. For the Bible geeks, you're loving this. I get that. A deeper reading. When he talks about food sacrifice to idols, the language he uses in the Greek refers to contact with any idolatrous practice. When he talks about sexual immorality, he's using the word pornonea. It's where we get the word porn from. And yes, he's saying stay away from all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, including pornography. But he's specifically talking here about pornonea, sexual immorality in relation to pagan worship. Pagan temples at the time used sex as a way of worshiping and engaging the favor of their gods, their false gods. And then when he talks about strangling animals and eating the food, eating them for food or, or, or drinking blood. Which is kind of a weird thing to do. That, that, that was common practice amongst pagans at the time as part of their worship, strangling an animal on the altar. And, and many believed actually that um, demons, the demonic was attracted to blood. Oregon, who was a, a third century theologian at the time, writes this. As to things strangled, we are forbidden by Scripture to partake of them because the blood is still in them. And blood, especially the odors arising from blood, is said to be the food of demons. Perhaps then, we are, perhaps then if we were to eat strangled animals, we might have such spirits, such evil spirits feeding along with us. What James is saying to these new Gentile believers 
and what he's saying to the church and what he's saying to these Jewish converts to Christianity. He's calling them back to the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before the one true God. You shall not bow down to any graven image. Because James, even at this early stage in the early church, knows how deceptive the heart is. He knows how easily our attention from God can be distracted and taken away by other things, either intentionally as we engage in, in, in pagan worship. There's very few here today do that intentionally. But we all have idols. We all have idols. Idols of comfort that cause us to, to find it so easy to watch Netflix for six hours, but so hard to read our Bible for 20 minutes. Idols of self-centered sexual fulfillment that leads us into temptation again and again with pornography or with flirting with that person or with whatever. Idols of success either for, for, for you, for me, for, for our kids that wanting them to achieve becomes more important than wanting them to see Jesus. Idols of materialism that having is more important than giving. James knows how toxic idolatry can be on the heart of a new believer and the heart of a mature believer. It's not a first century problem only, it's a 21st century problem as well. Something we all struggle with, let's be honest. Things that distract us from the presence of God as we go through our day taking our eyes off God and onto other things. Things that deafen us to the voice of the Spirit, that dampen us to the expectation that God will do what He says He's going to do, that, that deaden us to the power of the kingdom that we see here in Scripture, we don't see playing out in our lives today. Because my question, church, to myself, and my question, church, to, to you guys, to all of us, as we step into 2023, is Jesus number one in our lives? Are there other things that occupy that central place? Is our love for him, our commitment to him, first and foremost in everything that we do? Because if it's not, the reality is there are things in your life that are more important to you than Jesus, and those things are called idols. That's what James is talking about to the early church. He said, if we want to be a church that is faithful to Jesus, if we want to be a church that is faithful to the ministry, the kingdom come ministry of Jesus, we need to be a church that allows Jesus to be central in our lives and central amongst our community. And so as we step into 2023, I choose to believe and I invite you to choose to believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. In my life, and that he can be Lord and Savior in the lives of anybody. 
I'm choosing to believe and I invite you to choose to believe that, that Jesus is building his church even though the media would suggest otherwise that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell and the gates of secularism and the work of the enemy will not overcome it. I am choosing to believe that God's spirit is, is omnipresent with us in every in conversation, in every activity, in every place, in every environment that there is no room you are going to step into this week that God is not already ahead of you in that space and working. I'm choosing to believe when I step into those rooms that I'm going to see him release peace, supernatural peace that transcends the, the mess that is happening in that place, that I'm going to see healings happening that you're going to see healings happening, that we're going to see people we have been praying for for years give their life to Jesus and be saved this year. And we're going to do it with our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together now. I think there's three things that God wants to do this morning as we pray and create room for response. The first is there are people in this room who have never given their life to Jesus or have backslidden and fallen away and just feel really distant from him. And right now, this is your moment to, to step into friendship with Jesus. Jesus, come by your spirit and do a work in the hearts of your people now. Birth faith and reignite faith. If you want to become a Christian this morning, if you want to step back into that place of faith, simply pray with me. Jesus, I believe in you. I'm sorry for trying to do this stuff on my own. I need you. Fill my life with your spirit. Make me your child. For those we know that can't pray that prayer because they can't put words around things the way we do. Take a second now and pray that prayer for them. Second thing I believe that God wants to do this morning is to reveal, bring to the surface and allow you to set down some of the idols that you are carrying. And so I'm simply going to ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind the thing in your life and the things in your life that are more important to Jesus, more important to you than Jesus is. So Holy Spirit, Begin now to bring from darkness into light. Begin now to reveal those things in our lives that are distracting us from your presence, that are deafening us to, to your voice, that are dampening our kingdom expectation and are deadening us to the power of the kingdom. Bring those things to our mind now. 
and you become aware of what those are, some of those things you need to set down at the foot of the cross. And some you simply need to reposition in your heart so that they're still important to you and you still love and you still prioritize, but Jesus takes the center place. And then finally, there are things that God says he will do in his word that we have not seen him do either in a while or ever. There are people we want to see come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. There are people we want to see healed, either physically or or mentally. There are relationships we want to see reconciled and redeemed and restored. Are you willing to allow your theology to shape your expectation as you begin to pray afresh for those things now in 2023? God, allow your word and your promises to burn within us, to consume us, to drive us as we walk with you into this new year. Be our vision, be our hope because you are our Lord and you are our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.